Hi everyone. Before we get started today, I want to talk to you about our newest partner, BetterHelp. Throughout my own grieving process, I have found therapy to be critical in getting me to the point where I am today, and I truly cannot imagine getting through this past year without it. Uh, a lot of the world is still in some sort of quarantine or phased opening, and BetterHelp is a perfect platform for accessing therapy during this time because you can do it from wherever you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist, and you can have your first session scheduled in as little as 24 hours, which is huge. I know for a lot of people, you hit a roadblock in starting therapy because there's a pressure to really find the right fit. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. It's really easy to change a counselor if you feel like you want a better fit. The therapist you're matched with is available weekly, but you can send messages anytime through the app and get responses between sessions, which makes such a big difference, especially when you are processing a loss. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and they also have financial aid available, which I love and is one of the reasons that I decided to partner with them. We have a special offer for the Grief Coach listeners where you'll get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com slash thegriefcoach. That's T-R-Y-B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash The Grief Coach. You can join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced professionals. Investing in yourself is so important. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes, you know how much I prioritize doing the work to get through the grief process and BetterHelp is a wonderful platform to leverage to do so. Go to trybetterhelp.com slash the grief coach to get started. Hi everyone, this is Brooke James. Welcome to the grief coach. If you've listened before, so happy to have you back. And if it's your first time listening, so glad you're here. Today we have with us comedian and podcaster Jen Welch. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about grief stuff. (laughs) Me too. If you want to give the audience a sense of who you are and then we can get into the grief discussion. Oh, wow. Okay. I am a writer and comedian. I live in New York. I do things, lots of projects. My podcast is called Lady HD, a podcast for distractible women. If you haven't already noticed in this two minutes of me trying to explain myself, I have ADHD. I like to celebrate that. I feel like a lot of times we are kind of made to feel shame about it. So my whole MO is we celebrate our neurodiversity on my podcast. So that is, that's who I am. That's me. Perfect. That is something like people often feel shame around grief also. Very important work that you are doing because so many people have ADHD. Um, Mm -hmm. So good to feel like it's not a big deal because it's not. If you want to tell the audience a little bit about what your grief story is and then we can get into our discussion. Sure. My dad passed away in February of 2017 of lung cancer. He had been diagnosed six months earlier, and at his diagnosis, they were kind of like, yeah, if you look both ways when you cross the street, you'll be fine. You know, like that's what they said. And then six months later, he was signing a DNR, and that was it. He was like my person. In my family, my brother and my mom are very alike, and my dad and I are very alike. At the same time, my dad and I have kind of a complicated relationship. So I'm in recovery. My dad was like an active alcoholic. He was a very sleepy alcoholic. How do you put it? Because sometimes when you say, oh, my dad was an alcoholic, you think, oh, like an angry, raging. No, my dad was just always asleep in a chair. He worked swing shift at a factory growing up. Mm -hmm. He worked in a paper factory. And so every two weeks, the shift would change from like... 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. to 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. to 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And so he was just on this awful work rotation for most of my childhood. So dad was just always either asleep in a chair with a can of Genesee or up in his room asleep with cans of Genesee. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that was just how it was. I'm a kid. I'm a little girl. It's my dad. 
like he can do no wrong, right? Yeah, complicating it into adulthood, actually. He left in a really weird way, in a really sort of like avoidant alcoholic way without telling anybody (laughs) 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 on Father's Day weekend of 2002. (laughs) <laughs> he just kind of went somewhere and never came back and nobody knew what was going on and that was it. So it's like long story short. So basically I want to talk about this because I think that like, especially when I got into grief group, I was like, I'm the person with the weirdest family life. But then six weeks into grief group, everybody's skeletons were coming out of their closet, you know, but my skeletons have been out of the closet for years, like doing comedy and like, whatever. It's like, this is just stuff that I have to talk about. And also lots of therapy. But anyways, so my dad, when I was 16, he, the factory in our town shut down. He had to take Mm -hmm. a job at a different paper factory two hours north and he lived in a little boarding house up there and he came home every couple weeks for a long weekend or whatever. And my parents were like still together technically. But while my dad was up there, so before my dad moved up there, he had like stopped drinking supposedly. Mm -hmm. But really Mm -hmm. I found out after he died from one of my cousins that he used to put uh, regular beer in his non-alcoholic beer cans. Didn't know that. He, so he was working up there uh, for six years and then that factory shut down and that was 2002. And at that point he had built his own whole little life up there, you know, and there was always this thing where it was, well, we were going to move up there with him. But like my mom was kind of dragging her feet because our whole family was where we lived and everything. So my dad just kind of was like, I don't want to be back here. I want to be there where I kind of, you know, he... (laughs) (laughs) He was like the most popular guy at the VFW, apparently, according to his funeral. I didn't know this, but my dad was apparently like, I knew that he like would occasionally bartend at the VFW. My dad is not a veteran of a foreign war. My grandfather is. So my, my dad literally got grandfathered into the VFW. And it was like the whole small town in far upstate New York. I feel like the entire freaking town came out to his funeral. And I'm like, (laughs) dad was like the homecoming king up here or something, you know? Yeah. (laughs) What is this? Because growing up, it was, he was just like, you know, he worked all the time. And so he just had this whole life up there. So when he got his diagnosis and everything, we talked, you know, every, maybe I would say 12 times a year, maximum, right? Mm -hmm there were occasions where we talked more or talked less or whatever. But when he got his diagnosis, the last time I had seen him was at my grandmother's funeral, my nanny's funeral, his mom, which was three years before that. So it had been three years since I'd seen him. And now he has lung cancer and it's progressing really fast. I did two things before he passed away that I'm so grateful I did. One of them is I overslept and missed the bus to Thanksgiving that I was going to with my brother and his wife so that I could then go with all of my dad's sisters together up to see my dad in my dad's apartment. He got diagnosed in August. This is like November. And I'm Mm -hmm. so grateful I missed that bus because instead of going up there with my whole family and just being one of 15 people that are like up there to see him for an afternoon, I ended up going myself like two days later and I just got to have this whole day with just me and my dad. I got to like spend this whole lovely day with him. He picked me up at the little bus station, which was at a convenience store. He brought me to the grocery store so that he could walk me around and and introduce me to all of his friends who worked at the grocery store. And then he took me to the 7-Eleven to get his scratch off tickets. And he introduced me to his friend who worked at the 7-Eleven. And then we went to this place and he introduced me to his friend who worked at that place. He just like wanted to like show like, this is my daughter. And I'm like, oh, my heart, you know? And then I got to see like his apartment and I set up his Christmas tree for him. We just got to like sit and visit. It was just really nice and chill and special and, you know, and awkward, but still really great. And I just remember that day I wanted to get like some pictures of the two of us. And so we're just sitting on like this little couch next to each other. And my dad just put his hand on my shoulder and it's just this thing that like, okay, I do a lot of inner child work. (laughs) 
in therapy. And it was like my inner kid was just like, ah, my dad, you know, like just this somatic reaction just was like, you know, my dad loves me, which is, I just have to acknowledge it. So I have these pictures of us from that day. And also I have that sense memory of him putting his hand on my back in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think the last time he did something like that was when we both did a eulogy at my grandmother's funeral and I kind of broke down partway through it and he like stepped over and put his hand on my shoulder and I was, oh my God, I have a dad. (laughs) You know, just a reminder because for most of my adult life, it was just really difficult and we didn't see each other a lot. And so then, so that was like Thanksgiving that January, I had my biggest professional creative success that I'd had up until that point after the 2016 election. Another comedian and I kind of feeling like terrified for our lives. We need to channel this energy into something, you know. We ended up planning a, a three-day comedy festival that took place over inauguration weekend. We connected with other comedy scenes all over the country and England. So we ended up having shows go up over those three days. We had 88 shows go up in 33 cities and we raised over 50 grand for the ACLU. And we got interviewed in the Village Voice and like the Onion AV Club, Vulture and featured the New York Times and like just all this stuff where I was, oh my God, I did something. Um, You work so hard in comedy, like just in anonymity for so long and then to have something actually happen. And meanwhile, in the back of my head, I know my dad is not doing well. The Thursday after that festival, was when he signed his DNR. Mm -hmm. So I went from this like super high of this huge creative success that really like it like made a difference for people, you know, to, oh, my dad is about to die. And I ended up going, so he was like at the hospital in Syracuse. I ended up going up there and staying with him for the week. And other family members were in and out, but I was there like overnight for Mm -hmm. that entire week with him. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but also so healing in terms of just getting to like observe things as an adult and how you interact with somebody as an adult and just these moments that would happen. At one point, he just told me, well, I kind of have a joke about this, but, <laughs> but like, so at one point he, he just, you know, was sitting there. He could barely talk. He had really bad pneumonia and he just was like, I'm sorry, but whispering. He was just like, I'm sorry. and. I was really taken aback because, because, oh my God, my dad's apologizing to me. And I was just like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Because what am I going to say? I'm not going to like hold him accountable for everything right now. I just appreciate that he even said he was sorry. But maybe what you're all wondering, what I didn't think about until maybe a week or two after he passed away is... I wonder what he meant when he said he was sorry. <laughs> what was he sorry about? Like, why didn't I ask? I have no idea what it was that he was apologizing for. Was it the fact that he abandoned our family when I had just graduated college and was ready to start my adult life and left me with all of these weird abandonment issues? Or was it just he was sorry that I had to deal with some nurses or something? You know what I mean? Like, what was mm-hmm. it that he was sorry about? So I, there were just all these moments there that were special and funny and painful and, and like, and, and just weird. I, I didn't breathe fresh air for four days. I was just in the hospital with him. Mm-hmm. And, and then that they decided to, he was going to go home for hospice. He went in the ambulance home. I got on a train back to New York City. And then a day later, he passed away. And that was... I got the phone call that he passed away while I was waiting for the G train. Can you tell the story about when you were on the platform that you told me when we were talking before? Yeah, so I'm waiting for the G train northbound at Metropolitan Lorimer, which is like a pretty big stop in Brooklyn. Just as I'm coming down the stairs to the platform, my phone is ringing. It's my brother and I know what it's going to be. And he's just like, dad, uh, dad's gone. And I was like, okay. And I just am 
on the train platform now. Like, what do you do? Like, what do you, like, what do I, do I turn around and go back upstairs? Do I get on the next, like, what am I supposed to do right now? And there was a bench right there. And I just sat on the bench because I felt like I couldn't even make the decision to go back upstairs because where would I go when I got up? Whatever. Anyways, I'm just sitting on this bench and then And people are just kind of like milling around uh, again. And then all of a sudden I just hear coming down the stairs. I just hear like this music and it's the opening of Michael Jackson's man in the mirror. And this guy has on a boombox backpack and he's playing Michael Jackson's man in the mirror. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, really of all, this is before the like big HBO Michael Jackson documentary where like, I know Michael Jackson is problematic at this point, but it's not like, I don't have that much detail, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but still of all Michael Jackson songs, the one about taking a look at yourself and making that change and having this like transformative week with my dad that totally like, oh, I feel like it completely repaired our relationship. You know, it didn't fix everything, but it healed it and the the song is just going yet he's literally standing right freaking next to me and then it gets to like near the end of the song there's a key change in the chorus where it where it's like change i'm looking for that man in the mirror right and it's almost gets celebratory and all of a sudden everybody on the train platform around me is like dancing at this point so i'm just sitting there on the bench watching everybody around me dance michael jackson's man on the mirror and just as the song is ending the train pulls up everybody including that guy gets on it and then the train takes off and I'm like fuck I guess that's it I guess I get up now and that was how I got off the bench yeah moved on with my life was after that that's such a like special story it's a good reminder of things keep moving even when you're grieving which when you're grieving I don't know if you had this experience but I had, I can't believe people are still talking about all of these other things, but I feel like that the way that was presented to you from the universe is very poetic. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and see, it's funny because like my first instinct with this stuff, the next day I was doing jokes that I had already written about this experience just in the past 24 hours, like my brain just thinks in logic jokes. My brain Mm -hmm. is just like, all right, this just happened. Now I have a joke about getting the call that my dad died while I'm waiting for the subway. Okay. For me too, what it is a good reminder of is that it's okay to be grieving in public. And sometimes it's almost better, you know, Mm -hmm. because if I had just like been like, I need to get out of here. I need to, I need to hide. I would have totally missed that moment. But instead I was like, I just need to sit down right here. And then, like, I'm given this gift of (laughs) Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror next to me. And there were so many kind of, like, moments like that throughout the grieving process where it's, like, it's going to happen. So just let it happen in public and then see what happens. And I'm not saying go around and be a mess to everybody. I can't imagine not wearing my grief on my sleeve. I don't know how to hide it you know, in general. I do, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how. My brother, uh, he came over for like bagels when we got back from the funeral. And I like, he was going to start work again the next day. And I was like, you can take a few days off of work. And he was just like, oh, I cried. I'm fine. How? You know, but that's very much how my mom would be too, where it's, well, we got to get to work. I was a freelancer. I had just gone on this big emotional swing of this like huge, like professional success to my dad then dying two weeks later. Mm -hmm. Basically, one of the nicest choices and also like, I'm sure like some financial planners would be like, this is very irresponsible. But I had like 10 grand in a retirement account. I'm never going to need this money more than I need it right now, you know? And so I took the penalty, I took the money out and I gave myself that time to just exist, you know, and to just follow my instincts and do what I need to do instead of trying to force myself. And especially as a freelancer where you actually have to like produce the work. (laughs) So it's like you know, when you're grieving real hard and trying to actually do work that makes your clients happy, it's, uh, yeah. So I gave myself that gift of taking time off and just doing what I needed to do to get through it. 
which is so important. And people who've listened to the podcast for a while have heard me talk about this. I wasn't working when my dad was in hospice and we had hospice at home. And someone asked me like a week after he died, so what are you going to do about work? Are you going to go back to work? And I was like, no, I couldn't. (laughs) imagine and this goes back to what you were talking about earlier healing like to Mm -hmm. give yourself that grace period so you can heal in the moment sometimes is frankly kind of terrifying to take the time and do it and the emotions that come up and depending on what your like work situation is of can you take the time and what does that look like right and doing it allows you to process in a way that long term is so much better It's so much better. I I think February, I was mostly in shock. March was the month where I think I spent most of that month just face down in bed. And I needed to do that. This thing has happened where a person who has literally been in your life since the day you were born, who has been one of the most important two people in your life since the day you were born, and who is half of your DNA, is now gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously there's theories of how his energy may still exist in space or whatever. Sure, but that doesn't, like, the physicality of it. Yeah, I can't call. (laughs) You can't call energy. Yeah. That's a lot for your brain to, I think it's, it's similar to when, sorry, I'm about to get weird, but sometimes I try to think about what it must feel like to be in nothingness, right? So after you pass away, right, people have different beliefs. One of my possible beliefs is that we just stop, right? My brain, any thoughts I have will just stop. I'm giving everybody an anxiety attack right now, but like, what does that feel like for your brain to just stop? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to feel that and to process that. But I feel like it's almost equally as hard. I mean, obviously you can't feel like that and process that, right? Because my brain is, is still here. But what I'm saying is I have to comprehend the fact that my dad is no longer a thing. Mm -hmm. It's an absurd thing to have to wrap your head around. Obviously it happens. It's a part, it's, it's a natural part of life or whatever. It's like basically waking up one day and gravity is not a thing anymore. Like this thing that's just always been there that you can always kind of rely on, even if you can't really rely on it because you like took off to freaking Pulaski, but you can rely on it. You know, you can rely on it. It's a known entity. It's It's a a known known entity. entity. Right. And now it's no longer a thing. Right. Oh, I just assumed that every day I'd wake up and we would all uh, be attached to the earth via gravitational pull. But now that's not a thing anymore. I have a feeling that a lot of us would have a hard time processing that. And I feel like the death of a parent is almost inconceivable, even though we all know it's going to happen, like theoretically. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's the kind of thing that intellectually you're like, oh, yeah, that would probably be so hard. And once it happens, it shakes your foundation, which I think is what you're getting at. It was really eye-opening to me. It sounds like you also had this experience of like, you knew it was going to be bad, but then when it happened, you were like, what the fuck? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yes. And also at the same time, this is going to be a horrible analogy, but we'll just go with it because it popped in my head. We'll do it. We'll go with it. At, At the same time, I'm going to compare it to, just stay with me here, as a comedian, the first time you ever bomb on stage, the first time where you ever have a really just like, oh my God, out of body experience on stage, nobody's connecting. This is the worst thing that's ever happened, sort of bomb. It's almost like exhilarating afterwards because that's the worst thing that can happen. It Mm -hmm. happened and I survived it. And now I can do anything. Coming out of this grief situation, I still had to feel the grief and I still had to go through all of the pain of it. But at the same time, losing my dad or losing a parent is the worst thing that could happen, you know, for me. I don't have kids. I imagine that would probably be worse. But getting around the other side of it, like, I'm still sad about it all the time. But at the same time, it happened and I survived it. And I survived it in a really healthy way. And I learned so much from it. And I discovered so much from it. And I can do anything now. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally agree with you. And you get to, just like you said, you get to this point of what's the worst thing that could happen? Or why would I not try doing this? Like, yeah. let's see. And if it doesn't work, oh, well. Oh, well. Like, yeah. And I think that that, like, if you can let yourself get there, which for some of us 
who have anxiety or get scared or just nervous. It's really easy to get in your own head and be like, no, I can't do this. But I feel at least for me, and it sounds like for you, grief, let us get to this place of, well, I'll just try and see what happens. Absolutely. And I think too, getting through it, but as a person who's in recovery, I mean, one of the biggest fears is always that, oh, I'm going to like relapse or whatever. I'll have Mm -hmm. almost six years in January. I was two years sober when this happened and I fucking got through this. I didn't just like get through it. I eventually found ways to thrive as I was getting through it. Mm -hmm. And I am so proud of that. Yeah. Staying sober through a pandemic. Okay, great. What next? If I was able to like get through that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can do anything. It's awful. It's horrible. It's sad. I mean, it's beyond sad. Uh, It's devastating. We talked about this before. When you let yourself feel that much sad, you're able to feel so much more joy. And I'm not talking about like depression sad, right? Which I also deal with. I'm talking about like grief sad, active, there's a reason sadness. If you're feeling uh, sad all the time and you don't have a reason why you're feeling sad, please get help because you don't need to feel that way. But if your dad just passed away and he's your person and you are just like, what the fuck just happened? And you just had the best four days with him and you are just like, what the F? Like really letting myself feel that grief and just like really being open about it. I would be like at a bodega ordering a sandwich. I would just get this thought in my head as I'm like ordering the sandwich where it's like, dad loves turkey. And my heart (laughs) would just like, the joy I would feel in my heart would be like, it was going to like burst out of my body. And, Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, uh, and and so it's like these moments, I, I would just like, I forget how I used to refer to them, but I, I guess it would just be like dad loves me moments, like the, these moments, like these dad, like, oh, dad, you know, like moments of mm-hmm. uh, just like my heart feeling this love and joy at a level that I've never felt in my life over things like turkey sandwiches or or a good BLT or I I spent some time that summer working building chandeliers for a chandelier maker by hand and it was a really my dad would build decks for people's homes and stuff like that and so I kind of had this weird sort of like connection I felt with him as I was building these chandeliers because I'm doing all of this work with tools and and I just had this like dad connection as I'm like doing it just finding those things and just dad showing up in all these random places like I was telling you about so one of the things that I did I'm gonna segue for you here after face down march I was like I need to somebody suggested to me that I go on a like little trip okay I booked myself I've always had this like dream Mm -hmm. of staying in a bed and breakfast in Nova Scotia I don't know why. I didn't know anything about Nova Scotia. I like the idea of staying in a little bed and breakfast in Nova Scotia and like reading all weekend and looking out the window at, I think, I, I'm like, there's got to be water by there because Nova Scotia, I think, is an island. Screw it. I'm doing it. I flew to Montreal and then I took a 24-hour train from Montreal to Halifax and then I found this bed and breakfast that was this beautiful old church that had been renovated in this modern Swedish like decor, like mid-century mm-hmm. Swedish style. And it was beautiful on this cliff overlooking the water. And I stayed there in this beautiful room for three nights. My big day, my big excursion that I did there is I went into the city and they had a brand new library. And I just went to the library for like four hours in Nova Scotia. And I was like, this is amazing. And one of the things that happened while I was out there is like, there was this park area kind of Mm -hmm. right behind the church thing. I'll go like walk through there or whatever. I don't like calling it hiking because that makes me like bristle, but I'll go walk. And, and I went in there and it ended up being like an old military thing like there were uh, little barracks places where there were cannons and things like apparently there was a big war to do in Nova Scotia at some point I don't remember the details but my dad was very into civil war history world war ii history vietnam history 
all of that. I feel like he had survivor's guilt over Vietnam, kind of, because he um, didn't get drafted because he was too thin, and a lot of his friends got drafted. But so mm-hmm. I feel like he always had like a little whatever around that. I'm just walking around this old military site sobbing. <laughs> <laughs> all these other people are just like hiking with their families and stuff and I'm just like, <laughs> like it's a canon you know and but it was it was wonderful it's just all these places where you see dad now where before yeah. I would I wouldn't have even thought of that before you know what I mean if I had just gone there on my own before my dad passed away I'd be like oh military thing Ugh. you know and now I'm just like my dad would have loved this <laughs> But I think that that's good. Like, it allows for, when you're open to it, it allows you to have that connection more and, like, you almost appreciate more when you are seeing new things. Like, my, a bunch of my friends knew my dad and people who've listened before have heard me talk about this. I'll go to a restaurant or a bar pre-COVID. Oh, he would have loved this. It's a nice way, I feel like, to honor someone's memory in a way that, like, it doesn't need to be like this big crazy thing. It brings a little bit of like, like you can exhale a little because you are keeping that connection going. Absolutely. That sense. And there's this book that I read. I think I read it after my grandfather passed away, my dad's dad. It's called Some, and it's a book of short stories by this neurologist, neuroscientist, whatever. His name is David Eagleman. He does pop neurology, so he makes the brain really accessible to people. His books are amazing, but he did this one book that's fiction of short stories, and it's 40 short stories of like possibilities of what an afterlife could be. And one of the ones that has really stuck with me is that your spirit sticks around until the last time somebody speaks your name and then you're released, right? Then you're like, and so you would think that like, oh, I'd want somebody to like talk my name forever. But in this short story, there are people where it's like, maybe some street in Boston is named after them, but nobody really knows who they are and like whatever, this or that. And they're just like, please let me (laughs) go or whatever. At the same time, I feel like in terms of if there is an afterlife, I feel like what it is, is the, and I know I'm not saying anything super deep or anything here, but I feel like it's the, your eternal life is the memories that you inhabit in people's brains and thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. That's how you live on, right? So that's how my dad would like influence things going forward. There was one moment at the hospital that was so important to me. We hadn't seen each other a lot. You know what I mean? We didn't have a super close, like, you know, when my grandfather was sick, my aunt was bathing him all the time and she was like doing stuff. I wouldn't do that. Like neither of us would feel comfortable in that situation. You know, Mm -hmm. there was one day at the hospital where a nurse's aide came in and was like, okay, it's time for him to change. And I'm like, okay, I'll leave. And she's like, no, you got to do it. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm not going to, no, I'm not doing that. And she's like, well, he's going home to hospice tomorrow. What are you going to do then? Keep in mind, I'm not going back to his house for hospice. So I already feel guilt about that. And now this woman is like guilt tripping me about not wanting to like change my dad's hospital gown. Also, he's so frail at this point that I'm terrified I would break him if I moved something wrong. And so I just was like, she says, well, what are you going to do when he gets back to hospice? And I just am like, I'm doing the best that I can. And I run over to the little couch in the room and just like dive on sobbing. And she's just like, oh, she leaves. And my dad is like laying there and he's just like, Hey, hey, and I still crying, and I like look over at him, and he's like, Hey, come here, come here. And I walked over, and so I guess what I want you to understand is that, like, if this were my mom, like, I love my mom so much. My mom is Sicilian and would be horrified if I said that I wasn't going to change her in front of the nurse. My mom would be like, How could you do this to me? She thinks nobody loves me now, like (laughs) that whole thing. Whereas my dad is just like, Come here come here. And I like go over and I'm like, I'm so sorry, dad. And he goes, Hey, now that was weird. And I was like, yeah, it was weird. He's like, it's okay. And I'm like, okay. And I, I was just like, oh, right. It was just like beautiful reminder of like, right. My dad is my person. 
he gets it. Neither of us want this happening. And he's not mad at me for not wanting to change him in the fucking hospital. Yeah. Just having that moment to carry with me is like so... Well, it makes it human, almost. Yeah, it makes it human, and it just makes it special, and it's just a reminder of, like, oh, right, my dad did love me. Mm -hmm. I always knew my dad loved me, but, again, it was complicated. But this was, like, one of those moments where it's, like, right, okay, Mm -hmm. this is, according to my my therapist, (laughs) in healthy relationships with people, including family, everybody's allowed to have boundaries, right? They are. And so this was one of those moments where it was, there is something healthy about this relationship. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. This is amazing. I wanted to talk about your Tinder experiment that you did, which (laughs) you went viral for. I did. And I think that's like, it's a very, I would love for you to tell the audience about that because I think it's very interesting of what made you decide you wanted to do that and how it went. Okay, so I, right after my dad passed away, it was like, I was single, and my brother was married, and it just kind of felt like he had all the support, and I don't have support, you know, not in a like, wah, wah, wah way, but, and then it was one of these things where I was like, maybe, you know, an ex-boyfriend will show up, you know, kind of like try and take advantage of my vulnerability, and then that I can like use for some support. Mm -hmm. You know, that didn't happen. By the way, I'm talking like a timeline of like three days right now. I I was like, well, I guess I like, what am I supposed to do? I can't just like go on Tinder and like start dating people right after my dad died, you know, but then I started getting this thought in my head. And it's always bad news when I get a thought in my head of like, oh my God, how funny would it be if I just went on Tinder and started telling everybody that my dad just died? Because it was just a very funny idea to me at the time. I don't know. I don't know. So it it was one of those ideas that just, it was one of the few things that was making me laugh in the few days after my dad passed away was this idea of just going on Tinder and telling all my matches that my dad just died. And the joke was never them in my head. In my head, the joke was always me, like that somebody (laughs) would still try to be dating, like in the throes of early greet. And so I was like, screw it. I'm just going to do it because this idea is just eating away at me. I talked through it with my therapist. I talked through it with my most trusted friends. (laughs) And it was kind of like, what's the harm? I switched it. So my Tinder bio, it just read, I'm a comedian. My dad just died. Right. So it was right there. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no duping anybody. It's just like all out there on the table. And any matches that I got, I never messaged anybody first, but anybody who messaged me, hey cutie what's going on I would just be like nothing much my dad just died like whatever it was oh just trying to like keep it chill my dad just died like whatever and then letting them respond however they respond and what it taught me is that most guys don't read your bio or anything you're writing back to them they don't (laughs) care what you're saying at all Mm -hmm. um and also that there are a few good guys out there who actually did see what was happening and said very nice things to me in response to this. I never had an intention to like go on a date with any of them. It was just kind of like more of a comedy experiment to me or an experiment of, in absurdity. I really like absurdity. And so I took screenshots. I made a Tumblr and an Instagram called Dead Dad Tinder. I posted it on my socials. And then within a day, like Elite Daily picked it up. And then once Elite Daily picked it up, suddenly I was doing interviews with Cosmo and the Washington Post. It was in every single freaking newspaper everywhere. It was in newspapers in Australia and the UK. I just was the dead dead Tinder girl all of a sudden. I only had like 15 posts up on like at this point, you know. Um, I actually ended it pretty quickly because I got so much attention for it so fast. This was in February. Like, so my dad died February 4th. I think the first article came out on February, like, 20th, maybe, or something Mm -hmm. around there. So I was still very much in, like, the shock phase. And I was like, 
this is too much. But it was very funny to me. And then, you know, it really weirdly connected with the right people. I got messages and emails from people who are like, oh my God, I was in this situation when my parent passed away. I was messaging with this guy on Tinder who I had just matched with a day earlier. And then he's like, let's go get dinner soon. And I'm like, I'm sorry, my dad just died. You know what I mean? Like people who are like, act like, legit in this situation, which again, I am legit in this situation, but I'm also like using this as part of my hilarious grieving process. I got like nice emails from people, like the people who got it, got it. But then if you look at the comment sections for the articles, I mean, article comment sections are awful to begin with, but it was so funny reading some of them. I think you said you pulled some of them. Um, I was just doing research for the episode. And so I was poking around and people were like, I don't understand why you would involve other people in your process like this, which I thought was such an interesting place to come from because on one hand, you do have to really get through this by yourself. But on the other hand, you know, this is a thing that happens. I went out on dates a couple months after he died and like people would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, I have my own business and I have a podcast. No one ever asked about the business. Everyone asked about the podcast. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be like, oh, it's about grief and loss, da, da, da. And people who had like lost someone were like, wow, that's like really great that you're doing that. And other people would be like, oh, and I'd be like, I promise I'm still fun. Like, but I think this is important (laughs) to talk about. You know what I mean? Ultimately, long-term, you want to be with someone who can have a conversation about hard things. If you can't Uh, talk about this stuff, then I don't know how to talk to you. You know what I mean? Because like for me, as somebody who is very like open about everything, it's like, how do you not, I I don't know. I mean, everybody has their own process. Again, mine was very different than a lot of my family's. But you know, this, it's like, how can you involve somebody in in your grief? It's like, how can you not involve somebody in your grief? uh, Nobody should have to go through this alone. And also there are a lot of people with... uh, Tinder screenshot viral accounts that are doing things that are much meaner than just saying my dad just died, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. <laughs> there's totally. A lot, or there's just like guys who are horrible and send you like dick pics and shit, you know, like uh, whatever. One of my favorite responses that I would see in the comment sections was, oh my God, her dad must be ashamed of her. Her dad must be ashamed of her. I got my sense of humor from my dad. Like, this is exactly, my dad would think this was hilarious. This is the type of joke my dad would do if he were a 30-something uh, female, single, divorced, who uh, just lost her father. This is one of the times when I think I ever saw my dad laugh the hardest, was when we were up at, the, my grandparents had a trailer on the St. Lawrence River, and we'd go up there every weekend of the summer. But one year, I planted corn seeds out behind the shed, right? Because I was going to mm-hmm. grow corn. I didn't know what I was doing. I just sprinkled corn seeds literally against the wall of a shed which is not how you grow corn apparently because nothing grew okay and so five years later my dad is like out working in the shed area all day and then he comes in later on with arms arms full like arm like just all of this corn right and my mom's like, Jack, where'd you get the corn? And he's like, it was growing out behind the shed. The corn finally grew, like blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And everybody's like, oh my God, the corn, (laughs) right? And I'm still little, I'm maybe like 10 at this point. So I'm just like, oh my God, the corn. I think I should have been smarter, but it was my dad, you know? So it's like, oh, the corn, this is going out like, uh, the, everybody sits around we shuck the corn it's the most delicious corn everybody's anybody's ever eaten and all of a sudden my dad just starts cracking up like just laughing so hard and just bent over laughing and everybody's like what and he's like of course that's not the corn that you planted five years ago one of the neighbors happened to be walking by with some corn and gave him corn and he just thought it would be funny to say it was this old corn yeah like and so he just sat there all day long watching everybody believe this was the corn which you might think is like kind of mean but also I think I just think it's funny so that that's my dad's sense of humor so yeah so going on tinder and telling everybody my dad just died is maybe indicative of where I came from the comments that were negative around it were coming from this place of most people want grief to be a quiet thing like probably probably I'm just thinking about it as we're talking like that 
that makes sense to me that people would be like, oh, why is she doing this? Because it makes people really uncomfortable. It like, makes people really uncomfortable. I would write a piece, like a story about my dad, like every month on like the monthly anniversaries for the first year. And some of them were funny, most of them, but they were always like heartfelt or sincere or whatever. I know I lost followers on my social media because of that, but this is part of my like grieving process. I have to connect with people over this and the people I'm connecting with are the people who matter to me right now. Okay. Culturally, I do think we lost something when we let go of like morning wear, like grief fashion, because there is something about just making sure that people know that I'm going through this. Like, even if we never even talk about it, just the fact that you're aware is important to me. That's you know? so interesting. Yeah. Like, I because you have a point. <laughs> otherwise I feel like I'm pretending, I'm fake, I'm pretending, like whatever. But if I'm having a normal conversation with you, but I'm wearing like my black morning gown, then we're, we can exist in both situations. Oh. Well, when people understand and know where you're coming from in this place that is like very vulnerable and very hard, then they give you a little bit more space. If you're emotionally a little bit unpredictable or just a little sad or you need more time, whatever it is, if people understand it, like I similar to you, obviously, like I made a podcast about this because I was so frustrated with like, well, no one knows how to talk to me about this. It's really annoying. And so I literally made a podcast so people would like understand how you talk to and deal with people who are grieving and not wanting people to feel like isolated that they can't share their stories. I had the opposite, I think, of you when I I talk about my dad on his birthday, the death anniversary, whatever, and like every once in a while on social. And those posts get by far way more likes, way more comments. And it's just so interesting. Okay, I guess, is it just people are being supportive and then the algorithm pushes it? Or is it like people are seeing this as, oh, like you can talk about this and it doesn't have to be like terror. I don't know, I but mean, it's like, it's way, very interesting. Either way, think, either way, I think it's important and good. And, you know, and part of the reason why I was able to be so open about it was because of other comedians who I look up to or follow who were being open about their own stuff. You know, Um, there was this one amazing comedian. I love her so much. Her name's Lori Kilmartin. And she put out a special that was like 47 jokes about my dead dad or something. So she lost her dad a few years ago. She did the book. She did a comedy special about it. And now she just lost her mom to COVID. She was so open about that whole experience on Twitter and everything that she had to deal with with the hospital and all the fighting to be able to go in and see her. If we don't talk about this, nobody knows what's normal, what's not normal, what you can ask for, what you can request. When I lost both my grandparents, I was just in a very different situation life-wise at that point. And it was just like, you move on as quickly as possible. That was not very healthy for me at all you know, one of the things with ADHD is that we feel really big feelings and there's no, like, whatever it is, it's the thing that's the top page of the pile of papers is whatever the big feeling is at the moment. Like I can't hide it in the stack right there. (laughs) It's the cover page. I just compared myself to a document anyways, but that is something that I have to work with because when I don't work with that, it ends up coming out in really weird, awkward ways where suddenly I'm like, bah, at some really inappropriate place instead of having a nice, polite public cry, right? I'd rather have a nice, polite public cry than an outburst. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Well, and New York also is like the best place to cry in public because people leave you alone. I did a whole solo show called Jen Welch is Crying in Public after my divorce because I did so much crying in public around my divorce. Like, so much. (laughs) Constantly crying in public. I I think I've cried everywhere in New York City that you can cry, almost, about anything. I remember, like, very distinctly one of my dad's really close friends called me while he was, like, getting ready to go into hospice and I was walking down Fifth Avenue and just like had this vivid memory of crying talking to his friend I'm like we're all calling like I'm very close to a lot of his friends and so they would call me and so it's like okay I'm gonna cry on sixth I'm gonna cry on fifth I'm gonna cry on Madison I'm gonna cry on Park I'm gonna cry on Lexington <laughs> like just walking through the city and then like after he passed like I would be on the phone with like 
my grandma or my mom. And it's just like something about like the fresh air and the tears and like the movement of walking. Mm -hmm. It's healing to like let that energy out instead of keeping it bottled up, which so many people are scared. And so they keep it bottled up. If we can model to people that it's okay to cry in public, like good, because otherwise it comes out in like really inopportune times if you don't deal with it. If you don't deal with it. And that's why I feel like that's why dead dead tinder was so important to me too, because it's like, if I didn't get that out in this performance way, then I knew that I was going to start unhealthily dating and I didn't want to do that. So it was like, let's get it out this way, make something out of it instead of putting myself into bad, awkward positions. I don't need to be in because I feel like anybody who is eager to date you when you are uh, in your first few months of grieving is not going to be a healthy situation. (laughs) Not to say that like, you're not worthy of love or anything like that, but that's a lot to take on, you know, (laughs) when you don't really know somebody. And also I think that grief group was so important and right a day or two after my dad passed away at an open mic, because I was already doing jokes about (laughs) about it at an open mic, which again was so great because every comedian who had lost a parent knew to just like come up to me. And now I have like my comedy support group to help me through this. And I remember this one girl, Maria, saying, uh, in six months, sign up for a grief group. Not now. Do it in six months. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm so glad she said that because I wasn't ready yet to do it. Six months was kind of like the point when everybody who has kind of been there for you, who, where everybody around you is Everyone. Everyone's and they want it to be back. To <laughs> they want it to be back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like have... six months is generous. I would say it's like three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But then at the same time, also, I feel very lucky that being in recovery, I'm a person who does 12 step meetings and uh, having that to escape. I can't just go into a church basement and cry for an hour and nobody thinks I'm a weirdo for crying there, like sobbing. I can just yeah. sit here and around a group of people and sob openly. And that is amazing. Anytime you can sob around people, I feel like is great. I agree yeah. with you. Like, yeah. and if they just like let you as a support. Anybody, like, who, anybody who tries to tell you to like move on or don't cry or it's okay. Like maybe it is okay, but in that way where it's like, you're still doing this. I mean, that's another thing that was like huge after in these months after my dad passed away is really taking ownership of my feelings and and really accepting my feelings, no matter what they are at any given time, whether it's like devastation, because I just heard Rocky Raccoon from the Beatles. And that's a song I sung to my dad while we were sitting there in the hospital. Or maybe I'm at a fucking like bar waiting for a mic to start or something and now I'm sobbing. Or I'm standing in line in a bodega ordering a turkey sandwich and I feel so much love I can't handle it. Those feelings are completely acceptable and like appropriate. Wanting to like make a joke out of your desire to date people is completely acceptable and appropriate. Wanting to just be like face down in your bed for a month is completely acceptable and appropriate. Whatever it is, it's you're it's feeling it for a reason. It's appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Feel your feelings is yes. what I say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's stop there. And if okay. you want to tell people where to find you online. Yes. Um, you can uh, subscribe to my podcast and listen to Lady HD. It's a podcast for distractible women. It's on all the podcasting platforms and that's Lady HD. So it's like, it's like ADHD, but Lady HD, you know what I mean? You can follow the podcast on socials. It's at Lady HD pod. And then if you just want to follow me without the uh, podcast, you can follow me on all the socials at Jen Welch now. It's J-E-N-N-W-E-L-C-H, like the grape juice. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this today. I think hopefully give some people some inspiration and freedom for how to take care of themselves after a loss. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Jen. You can find us online at www.thegriefcoach.co and on social at the underscore grief coach. If you like the show, please um, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Rate five stars. It helps other people looking for this type of content find it. All right. Talk to you guys next week.